notre quotidien. C'est sur Taïwan. Oui. fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. It is an area which we call the mystical underground. On April 11, I began telling the story of a French-Canadian couple who encountered something very strange in their backyard on March 28, 2011. Today's podcast continues and completes that story, ending with a recent update from Charles Fontaine. I also want to mention that there's more to this story, as well as other UFO alien encounters in our book, Aliens in the Backyard, UFO Encounters, Abductions, and synchronicity. Part 5. Spot Story. Two days after the encounter, Charles is still not feeling well. The depression has also spread to Helene. Maybe even more depressed than either of them is their dog Spot. Before the evening is over, they are again subjected to something strange, and it involves Spot. Wednesday, March 30th, 2011. Still feeling the same today, the experience is always in my thoughts. I'm always looking down at the floor with that constant pain in my head. Later at home, when we sat for dinner, my wife said she wasn't feeling well. She felt pressure in her head, plus her eyes were itchy. She said the dog still refused to get out of bed, was not eating, and had not even gone outside for two days. Helena is exhausted and even suggests we should sell the house and have the dog euthanized. She is obviously feeling depressed and the weird experience is the only thing that we have talked about since it happened. Spot suddenly lets out a yelp of pain from the bedroom. He is there standing on the bed, his eyes dull and lifeless. He's afraid to jump off the bed, so I pick him up in my arms. He seems depressed, ill, anxious. I take him outside in the backyard for a bit then pick him up again and carry him back into the house. I give him some food and fresh water, he eats a little. I feel deeply responsible for his condition. It's my fault, I forced him to go outside that morning. I decided to take him for a walk. He always enjoys walking on the street, but now he can't go very far. He stops, lifts his left paw and starts whimpering. He can't put pressure any longer on that paw. I pick him up in my arms and take him home. Even though it's 6.30, I call the vet and explain my dog isn't feeling well. I'm told to come right away and I arrive in half an hour. The vet immediately sees that his eyes do not seem healthy and he continuously whimpers. She wants to know when he started acting ill and I tell her, did something in particular happen that morning, she asks. 
No, nothing in particular. I can't tell the vet the dog has seen UFOs outside her house and might have been abducted by aliens. No way. I turn the conversation to Spot's left paw. She says it could indicate a problem underneath or alongside the paw. It could even be caused by a problem with the dog's neck vertebrae. She prescribes a drug which reduces swelling and inflammation. Back home, I put the dog gently down in his pet bed in the basement. The phone rings and I answer. It's Erica, our neighbor. She says, Charles, my cousin Henry just called me and asked me to give you a message right away. He said it was important and that you would understand. I hope so, because it's odd. What is it? He said that his beings of light just sent him a message for you. They want you to check your dog's left paw carefully. There's something either underneath his left paw or along the side of the paw. You should also check the dog's neck for a very small cut. It's where they inserted an implant. You might need a flashlight. Look closely. Henry also said, you can call him if you want. He's at home. I hang up the phone, throw it on the couch, and Helene asks, what is it this time? I'm angry, nervous. I find the flashlight and sit down on the floor beside Spot, gently pick up his left paw and examine it carefully. I stop almost immediately. I'm shaking, too afraid to find a cut. How could Henry know exactly at that precise moment about my dog and his left paw? I call him. I'm starting to feel defensive and aggressive towards him. Who are you? How could you know about my dog? My beings of light told me about your dog, and they want me to communicate this to you. He speaks quietly, and I realize he's going into trance. I'm frightened and angry. Why is this happening to me? I try not to listen. His words scare me, but I memorize some of them so I can look them up on Google later. After a couple of minutes, he finally asked me a question. The light that you saw hanging in your backyard, was it pure, bright, white light, perfectly round? No, it wasn't round at all, but rather like a vertical tube, a machine, not from this world, and it scared me like nothing ever scared me before. And then he repeats what he had already told me. There are two different types of aliens, good and no good, and that those who visited us were associated with the good ones. I then told him that I was thinking seriously about consulting a hypnotist to help me discover the missing part of my experience. They didn't want you to remember some of the details, but if you really want to be hypnotized, I suggest that your wife go with you. Just before saying goodbye, Henry says, look at your dog. I glance at Spot, who's resting on his bed. They are telling me that they, the the beings of light, are right beside him and comforting him at this precise moment. From now on, he will be resting. After the call, I start thinking about this guy, that this guy could be connected with the wrong ones. I even tell myself that maybe he opened up the wrong door and he let the bad ones in. I will see him in person April 4. Maybe then I will know more. Over the next several weeks, Charles experienced a series of synchronicities related to his neighbors, the ones who introduced him to Henry. It seemed that they were linked in a way that he didn't understand, and neither neither did they. 
He would notice them in places where it was very unlikely to see them. For example, he'd be shopping or in a restaurant 20 miles from home, and he would encounter them. It was quite unusual, almost impossible, that I would see them so often. Certainly, they weren't following me. They were just as surprised to see me as I was to see them. One day, I was about 17 miles from home, sitting alone in a coffee shop and thinking about all that has taken place, trying to understand it and find some solution. I was wondering who could help me. As I left the coffee shop, a vehicle arrived and parked next to my car, even though there were many other spaces available. And guess who it was? The neighbors. They were as surprised as I was. One of them said, it's so amazing. We live next to each other and rarely see each other. But isn't it strange that everywhere we go now, we are, you are there. Part six, a week in the life of. We begin part six with a synchronicity. Charles cries a lot about his experience over and over. For days following the event, he is inconsolable. The experience metaphorically has cracked open his head and broken his heart. The world is no longer what he knew it to be. What made him so fearful is not necessarily the cones of light in the field, but the object, the tube or machine as he calls it, which appeared like a UFO on its side. It hovered with circulating O-rings along the rim. It did so near his weeping willow tree. There it is, a tree related to crying. It's a weeping willow in English and in the French translation. What follows is a diary, one week in Charles' life in the aftermath of the encounter. Remember, remember the early morning incident took place on March 28th. Over the week covered, beginning three days later, his life has become dominated by that event and it begins to be mixed with an invisible presence, possibly related to his earlier experience in the graveyard. The week begins with a visit to his parents and ends with a surprising encounter with a pharmacist. Thursday, March 31st, 2011. As soon as I'm home from work, I have a strong feeling that I should delete all the photos of the tombstones I'd taken at the graveyard. I'm seriously concerned that those photos could be linked to all the strangeness that has occurred. I feel a presence in my house. I want to be sure that everything that might attract them is cleaned away, that nothing in my possession will limit, link me to these unseen beings. I can't stand the fact that these things exist, whatever they are. That evening, I visit my parents and right away, I start crying and ask them to listen carefully to what I have to say. Later, my mother declares that she thought I was going to announce that I had cancer. She also says my eyes are not the same as usual, but rather dull, and that my pupils are very large and dark. They stayed like that for about two weeks. I'm relieved that my parents believe me, and they've helped me ever since. We discuss the matter every time we meet. They're always, they always ask for details. Saturday, April 2nd, 2011. I want to find out what happened during the missing time, so today I have an appointment with a hypnotherapist. Helene refuses to come with me. She's too afraid. She doesn't want to know. I tell the therapist that I am not consulting her to forget my experience. Even though it's difficult for me to live with this new reality, I tell her that I want to relive everything that I missed when I blacked out. 
Unfortunately, the session doesn't go well. She fails to hypnotize me. She tries to take me back to the wrong day and time. Plus, I'm disturbed by noises inside and outside her office. At least I am able to close my eyes and get some rest for a while. I feel more secure. I have someone guarding me while my eyes are closed. Monday, April 4th, 2011. I'm home early from work. It's raining and I wonder if Henry the medium will show up for our appointment. The phone rings. It's the neighbor, Erica. She says her cousin, Henry, called to cancel the visit because of the rain. However, she says, if I want, I can call, give him a call. After dinner, I decide to do so. The first thing he says is that he wants me, wants to meet me on Friday, April 8th. Then he launches into more talk about his beings of light. He tells me they were constantly sending him messages of love and also messages about future disasters. Finally, he starts talking about what happened in my backyard. And still he insists they are angels of love. That's it, too much for me. I get mad and ask him, you, Henry, have you ever seen what I saw? He says, no. I tell him that if they're as good as he says they are, can he explain to me why Helene and I both have so much pain and pressure in our heads and why we have lack of energy? If they are really angels of love, they would have done no harm to us. Wednesday, April 6, 2011. I feel the need to get out of the house. After dinner, I decided to visit a friend in a nearby town. However, before I arrive, I stop at a drugstore. I still have the prescription for the colon, the colon surgeon recommended that I take before the test and decide to get it filled. While I'm waiting, I look for some non-prescription medicine to help my wife and I relieve our headaches and help us sleep. We both still have a constant pressure in our head and can't sleep more than two consecutive hours. An employee comes over and asks if I need help. I tell her that I'm looking for a non-prescription medicine to help me sleep. She replies that I should talk to the pharmacist when he finishes with my prescription. She goes to tell him. A few minutes later, the pharmacist approaches and asks me how he can help. Is this for you? He asks after I tell him. For both of us, my wife and I. Have you thought about marriage counseling? He asks. No, not at all. Uh, we're, we're, we're fine. Nothing is wrong between us. We don't need counseling. To my surprise, he says, you could use counseling. My eyes start to get wet and I tell him, no, we can't get counseling because we know we are not crazy. Counseling will not help. He looks carefully around and moves closer. He whispers, tell me, where did it happen? Inside or outside the house? I don't respond. What is he talking about? Does he know? How could he? He repeats the question. This time I say, outside. He looks right in my eyes and whispers, you know, the, the UFO phenomenon is real and many people are aware of their existence. He takes out a piece of paper from his pocket and writes someone's name and phone number. Call this person either tonight or tomorrow. Tell him that Andre said that you should call him. He will help you. Then he picks a bottle of melatonin off the shelf and says, this will help you and your wife get some sleep. I leave the drugstore with my prescription and the melatonin, plus the piece of paper. I'm speechless. I'm no longer in the mood to visit my friend. I get in my car, 
I'm so exhausted, I start crying. I start the car and drive home. Part seven, Seeking Holy Water. As the story continues, an eerie melancholy pervades. An invisible presence stalks Charles. He feels that his house has been infested with something evil, that it must be cleansed. He's literally living in the castle of Otranto. Has something attached onto him from his trip to the cemetery? Is it something left over from the encounter with the cones of light? Or could it be possible? Could it possibly be a combination of the two? Here's Charles. When I arrived home, I call the number the pharmacist gave me. No one answers and I don't leave a message. I start feeling frightened all over again. How could the pharmacist have found out? What did he see? What does he know? And who is this man he wants me to talk to? But it's just not that matter. I sense a presence besides me. I cannot explain it, but it is there following me. I'm more receptive now. I hear weird sounds and see dark shadows. I am haunted in my own house. I am scared. My mind and my reason cannot deny it. Something is nearby with me. I sleep in the basement. I feel more secure because I keep some lights on. I can't sleep upstairs. Helene sleeps with all the lights turned off. The next day, April 7th, I go to work as usual. I still have that huge pressure in my head. I lack energy. All that is happening to us is draining me. All I am doing is thinking and thinking. I must be dreaming. This cannot be possible. What have I done? Did I allow something bad to come into my life? Again, I am thinking seriously about suicide. What disturbs me, though, is that I keep wondering what or who would be waiting for me on the other side. At 9.50 a.m., I decide to call the man named Jules, the one the pharmacist recommended. I close the door of my office and punch the number. This time he answers. I greet him and say, Andre gave me your phone number and said that you will help me. I feel emotional and don't know where to begin my story, but before I say anything further, he tells me to take a deep breath. I know what you saw, UFOs. You have to be aware that you are not the first and won't be the last. It happens every day. I won't let you down, but you are in shock. I told him briefly what happened and told him about the medium Henry. He said, are you a believer? Have you got faith? Now I do, no doubt. Faith is your only weapon. You know what you must do, clean up the house. Tell them that they are not welcome. They have to leave. What about the medium? Mediums are very sensitive people. He is really in communication with those beings of light and he is probably not a dangerous person, but considering your condition, you, sh you should stop talking to him. With that, Jules said he had to end the call. I am a microbiologist working in Montreal. This is all the time I have for you this morning, but I will give you a call this evening. Five minutes later, I call the priest in my hometown. I did not identify myself. I asked him if I could stop by later for some holy water. He laughs a bit and says, if you want holy water, all you have to do is come to mass next Sunday. Then he hung up. I am mad at him. After work, I go home and tell Helene about Jules and what he suggested that we do about cleaning the house. And also what he said about Henry. The phone rings. My wife answers. I hear her say, well, why don't you ask him yourself? Here he is. She hands me the phone and whispers, Erica, the neighbor. Erica sounds very nervous. 
Henry just called me a few minutes ago. He wants to know if tomorrow's still good for you for the visit. Erica, tell him to stay away, but I do not want to see him. Tell him that I, I think he opened the wrong door. He thinks he's connected with the good ones, but they are lying to him. So they must be the bad ones. She asks why I don't call him myself, and I tell her that I want no, I want no further contact. I know what you mean, she replies. It's kind of strange. I don't like getting his phone calls and having to call you. But he also wanted me to tell you that he has something very important to tell you concerning your family. After a moment, she adds, I just hope you are not mad at us. You are good neighbors. What have you seen exactly? I saw something I wish did not exist. Later in the evening, Jules calls me. I'm very exhausted. I tell him about my phone call with the priest in the holy water. He says, you do not need holy water to clean the house. Your faith is good enough to kick them out. You are strong enough. Go to every corner of your land and mark your property. Place a shield in your mind on all of your property. I asked him how much Andre the pharmacist had told him before I called. He replies that Andre didn't tell him anything. He is my brother-in-law and very open-minded because of personal experiences. He is aware of their existence. We talk for half an hour and afterwards, I feel better knowing that a pharmacist and a microbiologist don't think I am crazy. However, by Sunday, I'm feeling that my faith is not strong enough to get rid of this presence in the house that I feel everywhere I go. I am so afraid of mirrors now. I feel like another dimension is in there. I feel like something is going to come out. I decided to go to church, but not in my hometown. I drive to a nearby city. I've brought along an empty plastic bottle, which I've hidden in my jacket. After mass, I ask an old woman who helped with the ceremony if I could have some holy water. She was very kind, and when I took up the bottle from my jacket, she said, you may take as much as you want. This is free, and you may come any time you want more. Back at home, Helene is lying on the couch with a cold water towel on her forehead. She complains of a headache and the constant pressure that I also feel. I immediately go to the basement and pour a bit of holy water in my hand, touch my forehead with it, and drink a bit. Spot is nearby, so I pour more in my hand, let the dog lick it. I pour more and touch his head. Then I bless every room by throwing drops of holy water and saying, get out of here, leave us alone. You are not welcome here. We want to live in peace, in peace with Jesus Christ, our only Lord. I go upstairs and did the same thing in every room. Then I pour holy water in Helene's hand and tell her to rub her forehead. She drinks a bit as well. I go outside to every corner of our land and even to the sheds, kicking the bad ones out of our property, blessing and making a protect, protective shield against them. Later that same day, my wife and I start feeling better. The headaches and pressure on our heads ease off. Part eight, guns, synchros, and angels. Part eight completes Charo's jur journal entries that cover the first month of events following the encounter. He is still battling his fears, but gets some help. He also finds out the results of his colonoscopy and is left with more questions. Monday, April 11th, 2011. The next morning in my office, I start feeling a headache and the pressure again. I close the door. I am furious. I feel they are here and I tell them to leave us alone. After that, I start feeling better. Thursday, April 14th, 2011. 
I still don't feel safe at night. I'm afraid the UFOs will come back. After work, I go to a gun shop and buy a semi-automatic rifle. I feel more secure, yet I know it is of no use. If they come back, I cannot stop them. Saturday, April 16th, 2011. Andre the pharmacist calls. He and Jules are coming to visit this afternoon. We talk about the encounter. Jules tells me that a lot of people he knows have experienced UFOs phenomenon, but many of them refuse to talk openly about it. Like me, they don't want to be pointed out as idiots by non-believers. Jules suggests that I don't look at any strange lights hanging in the sky from now on, and he says we should leave some night lights on inside our house. He adds that if they ever come again, turn on the radio, make noise, and call the fire department and cops. The more people who witness their existence, the better it will be for everyone. He also says that they can read our minds, so tell them to bother someone else. Then he says that we were probably abducted. We talk and talk for hours. At some point during the conversation, I ask Andre, how did you know that I saw UFOs? He says that he had an experience himself, an enormous black helicopter that was soundless, hovered above his vehicle. It looked like a helicopter, but it wasn't. He added cryptically that his brother-in-law, Jules, teaches him many things related to UFOs. I consider my contact with these two men as synchronicity. I was looking for help and found it through a pharmacist without asking for anything but over-the-counter sleeping pills. They came into my life at the right time. Maybe they were sent by real angels, the good ones. Tuesday, April 26, 2011. The colonoscopy results are negative. The doctor says he checked carefully because he knows about all that blood a month ago. He's puzzled, doesn't know exactly what could have caused it. But he said that I must not worry, all is fine. See you in five years for your next test, he says as I left. So what caused that spillage of blood? And did it have anything to do with the strange experience in the cemetery that preceded the encounter? Part nine, making contact. In the summer of 2011, Charles had another encounter. This one while driving through a forest at night after attending his first UFO conference. That's where we'll pick up the story, the final chapter. In the weeks following the encounter, I became more sensitive to people who were destitute. I could not stand seeing or hearing about the misery of people. Destitute people made me cry. In June, I even volunteered to help victims of flooding on the south shore of Montreal. Usually, I would have commended the work of such volunteers, but would not participate personally. Before March 28th, I wasn't so sensitive towards people I didn't know. That was the date my life changed. However, after a few months, that very high sensitivity to the destitute and downtrodden has disappeared. Such desirous circumstances still sadden me, but I don't cry anymore. As always, I try to find meaning in what I lived through. Helene doesn't have the same approach though. For her, it happened and that's it. She wants to move on ahead with life. But for me, I feel my life is on neutral. I'm without goals, waiting for an end. I need to know why it happened. I deeply feel something or someone is trying to tell me something. 
I am continually frightened, but I have to know, otherwise I will get crazier. Even after months, I still constantly feel this presence besides me. Although I want help, I cannot bring myself to talk to a psychologist. He or she would send me to a psychiatric consultation and I might even be hospitalized in a psychiatric institution. I can understand their point of view. I would have uh, had a hard time believing my story if it came from someone else, even from someone in my family. So why would a psychologist believe my story? But maybe there was someone else who would understand. I remembered seeing a man named Jean Gestalt, a ufologist from Quebec City on television. I made a Google search and contacted him through his blog. I wrote about my story to him. I felt I had to discuss it with someone aware of their existence. I needed help so I could live on. It was painful to write about it. I wanted to drive directly to his house. I had so much to tell, but he wanted me to write down all the details. I also sent him photos and drawings. My wife and I even had to fill out a questionnaire individually. One day he wrote to say that he was going to be the host of a private conference in an auberge, an inn in Valcourt, midway between our two locations. He proposed we meet to discuss and make it part of the investigation. Our first meeting took place on Saturday, July 2nd, 2011. This auberge is far away from the city, deep in a forest, and I needed to use my GPS to find it. Part of the drive through the forest was on a narrow, unpaved road, and I knew it would be scary at night. Upon arriving, I met with Sean Gasol, and we talked for hours. I began with my story from the graveyard, but he didn't consider that experience related to any of the encounter at the house. I didn't agree, but I didn't well, decided not to argue. As I accompanied Gasol into the conference that evening, he told me that if it got too scary, I should leave. As people started arriving, Gasol and I were both amazed by the attendees who looked as if they arrived from Woodstock. Gasol joked that in uh, it's been years since he had seen so many people with long hair. There were about 25 altogether, ranging in age from 35 to 70. I was surprised that the attendees didn't seem to know each other and came from various parts of Quebec. Everyone was very zen, very knowledgeable. As for myself, I was lost. I just listened. I was very much the amateur in the crowd. I could not even understand the meaning of most of their discussions. One woman said, it was possible to attract the aliens to the area that they could hear us. She suggested that everyone go outside and call upon them. I did not like that idea and wished that I had left. Gasol, though, refused to go along with the idea. He said that even if they did come, people would still say they did not exist. During the evening, I would watch someone and our gazes would meet. I would look at someone else and again our gazes would meet. It happened over and over. Many of them seemed to look at me at the same time. I had this strange feeling I couldn't explain, but I felt as if I had seen many of them before, somewhere. I didn't know where. The conference ended about midnight. People started standing up. I turned around to a man behind me 
who appeared to be in his early 60s. I asked him if most of the people in the audience had seen something. He looked at me and said, I would say about 75% of them are witnesses. And you, have you seen something, I asked. His eyes grew damp, and he said twice. The first time, I was nine years old, and the second time, I was about 12. I will never forget. I love them so much. I was confused. Others had said the same. How could they love them? I was afraid of them and even bought a rifle. I told the man that I had this weird feeling that I'd already seen many of the attendees elsewhere, but I couldn't figure out where. Meanwhile, five or six others joined us and talked about their experiences. None of them were afraid. They told me that I looked familiar. They had seen me before, maybe at another conference, but that was impossible. I'd never gone to anything like this until this evening. I felt comfortable enough with these people to review my own experience. I was hoping they would tell me not to be afraid. I was awkward, I whispered. I wanted to tell them everything, but tried to compress it. I didn't know where to start. I told them about the investigation questionnaire my wife and I had filled out separately uh, for Jean Gassault. I learned for the first time from my wife that when she is home alone, sometimes she perceives a strong, disagreeable sulfur smell near her. They all spoke up at the same time. The greys, no doubt it was the greys. They are still there in your house. I didn't like what I was hearing. This was difficult for me. I needed answers. I asked, what could I do? They said, you can talk to them. Tell them not to, be, not to scare you, to respect your privacy. Even though it was late, I decided to leave for home. I left the inn and moved into the night. It was so dark that I took out a small flashlight attached to my key ring so I could get to my car. I was scared something would come out of the darkness at me. Once in my car, I locked all the doors and turned on the radio and searched for rock music. I wanted to concentrate on music instead of what I'd heard. As I was leaving on the long narrow driveway from the auberge. I was reminded of what one of the women had said about the power of communication, that we have the ability to contact them and that they can sense our feelings. But I was trying not to think about UFOs. Once I was on the deserted country road with no lights, I remembered that I told myself earlier on my way to the conference that I should take a different route on my way back. So I decided not to follow the instructions on the GPS, thinking that I would get out of the forest and into a more populated area. But I was soon lost. I didn't know where I was. And the GPS didn't say, it kept saying recalculation in progress. I was so scared that I was starting to talk to them, begging them not to appear before me. I was driving on a narrow, unpaved road in the heart of a forest. I regretted leaving now. Finally arrived at the highway and felt much safer. Now I could follow a car to the next town. I was halfway between Valcourt and my hometown where, when I decided to slow down and let the car in front of me pull away until it almost disappeared from sight. There were no cars behind me. I wanted to try and see if the woman was right about the possibility to, uh, 
that we could communicate with them. I turned off the radio. I started talking to them, saying, if it's true that you can read my mind or hear me, I would like you to send me a sign that you are still there. I am ready to see more proof of your existence, but only if you are not taking control of my mind and body and that you do not scare me. And right then, on my left side, less than 500 feet in front of me, a huge round shape, pure white light hovered just above leafless trees. It was very close to the highway. I reduced my speed and almost decided to stop my car completely. This huge round of very bright light had two blue lights extending from it that made a 90 degree turn counterclockwise for a moment and then make, made a 90 degree turn clockwise. The light itself didn't illuminate the nearby tree, trees or the highway. It was just pure energy. I felt safe as my eyes started to get wet and I whispered, thank you. I deeply felt they were not the ones that came to my backyard earlier. They were more like what the medium had described to me, a globe of light, beings of light. I continued home without further incident. Postscript. Now it's 10 years later, and I wrote Charles to ask him how he felt about the experience a decade ago. Glad to hear from you both. No worries. I have not forgotten you at all. I do not read my emails that often. I have such work to do at the office that when I get home, I stay away from my computer. But I wanted to get in touch with you earlier, but honestly, I thought maybe I would be bothering you. You are right. March 28th of this year was the 10th year anniversary. I feel peace now. I am no longer frightened. I am no longer scared of death. Since I know there are other dimensions now, I know for sure that both things, UFO aliens and the spiritual paranormal activities could be in fact from the same source. Because of my own experience and time passing by, it has helped me to analyze the facts step by step, and I found clues that confirmed to me the possibility that aliens and spirit beings are probably one from, this, from a single source. Bonsoir, mes amis, Charles. Thanks for joining The Mystical Underground. Visit www.themysticalunderground.com for the latest blog post and book info. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Listen to the podcast at podcast.themysticalunderground.com. Follow Trish and Rob on Instagram at Trish and Rob McGregor. Follow us on Twitter at The Mystic Cast. Send email to podcast at themysticalunderground.com. And until next week, thank you for listening and stay mystical.